Live to see it, friends. Welcome to The World Transformed. This program is your guide to an astounding future that lies ahead, one that will be here sooner than you think, and one that you have an important role to play in bringing about. My name is Stephen Gordon. Phil is a little under the weather tonight. I know he'll get back to the hosting chair as soon as he can. Get well soon, buddy. I know Phil's envious because tonight I get the pleasure of talking with one of our favorite guests, Mr. Thomas Fry. Over the past decade, Thomas Fry has built an enormous following around the world based on his ability to develop accurate visions of the future and describe opportunities ahead. His keynote talks on futures topics have captivated people ranging from the highest level government officials to executives in Fortune 500 companies including NASA, IBM, AT&T, Hewlett-Packard, Lucent Technologies, Boeing, Capital One, Ford Motor Company, and many others. I know we'll have a good time talking with him tonight. How are you, Thomas? I'm doing great. Excellent. Well, we're talking tonight about peak electricity and an article that you published at futuristspeaker.com. Why don't you kind of set this up a little bit for us, Thomas? What what is this peak electricity business? I mean, uh, aren't we using more and more electricity all the time? Yeah, that's that's where we have it wrong. Um, we we actually peaked with our use of electricity in the United States in 2007, and we've been actually tapering off, not a lot, but it, it plateaued kind of, and it's tapering off a little bit since then. And so I, I wrote this column. You know, we're trying to figure out why is it that that all of a sudden the electric use has started declining, and is that going to be an ongoing trend from here on out, and there's, there's lots of variables in place, so it's not, a, not an easy thing to forecast. So, yeah, 2007, that's when kind of the, the recession hit, and there was, some of it was attributed to that, but then there's other things like energy-saving appliances and putting solar on houses and, and just getting a little tighter in how we, how we use our power in our houses. Uh, there's there's a lot of other things that are contributing to that, but it caught a lot of people off guard that we we were assuming that we were just using more and more every year, and we look back right. and say, wow, that wasn't true. I, I wonder if LED bulbs have a big part to play in that, or is that kind of overstated? That that has a part of it, but uh, there's no one obvious way to attribute this the the decline. So I think it's a, a positive step in the right direction. But I also think that we're going to be figuring out new ways of generating power in the future that we things that seem unimaginable today. Well, it, it, and it could be that we're doing more and more with less energy, and that's that's a good thing considering that uh, so much of our electricity still comes from uh, non-renewables, and so I, I guess it's a better thing for the planet if we can if we can do everything we need to do and more uh, with with less energy. So that's that's good. In, in your article, though, you, you speak a lot about some trends that you see coming that uh, will change both the production of energy and the use of it going forward. Yeah. Can you kind of walk us through some of those? Yeah, some of them will provide us with more energy. Some of them will cause us to use less energy. Some of us will cause them to use more. So as an example, if we put solar shingles, solar roofs, and power walls in our houses, this is kind of the vision that Elon Musk has, then very likely we will stop using as much power for our houses. That, I think, is uh, entirely possible. I like the idea of someday getting to a point where we can actually 3D print our houses 
so we can design a house and 3D print it in a day. And as this technology improves, you know, we're not just printing the structure, we're also printing the wiring and the walls, the plumbing and the cabinets and the kitchen and the sinks and the toilets. But then we should also be able to eventually print solar cells onto the sides of a house and onto the roof. And so it can be absorbing power in uh, unique and different ways. And then we, we probably create far less demand on, a, on a, a, a grid system that we have. And incidentally, we're going to shift from national grids to the microgrid. So we'll have kind of community-based grids, and that will open the door for lots of experimentation. So we're going to try a lot of new things then. Well, you know, if we're printing our houses, we don't have to print boxes like uh, most of us live in now. We can, you know, have homes that curve and flow, basically, and orient our homes so as to best harvest solar energy or even wind, right? Right. Yeah, be a little, a little bit more efficient in how we, in how we do that. That's excellent, excellent. Okay, so yeah. uh, we, we have more efficient homes and, and 3D printed homes, so... What's this about Japan uh, and their plans to actually harvest energy in space? Yeah, that that um, we don't we don't know if that's ever going to come about. But you know, after the Fukushima power plant disaster, Japan was looking at what their options were for uh, sort of nuclear power. It didn't seem like a viable option for them anymore. And they, they looked at uh, Japan as kind of out there on their own. They don't have a a lot of coal reserves or oil reserves or any of that. They're relying on all these other countries and they want to have control over their own destiny. And so they looked at this possibility of shooting a satellite in space that would have giant solar collectors that would beam it down to the earth and beam it down to a, a floating island on the ocean and, and theoretically create the world's first one gigawatt power plant in space that that's uh, enough to to power a small city then. And so that may may be possible. I mean, there's there's other things too, like atmospheric energy harvesting. I mean, there's, there's guys out there that are actually trying to uh, capture lightning bolts. I mean, suck all the power out of a lightning bolt. Can we do that? I mean, it sounds like fun, but it's also dangerous as hell, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of sounds that way, but, and, uh, you know, yeah. There's sort of a, there's sort of the uh, the peak energy problem, right? I mean, times times one thousand because you're producing a whole <laughs> lot of energy at one instant, and not a, not any at all after that. I guess you'd have to be, yeah. get real good not only at not electrocuting yourself by collecting it, but also in storing the power as until it's needed. Yeah, that's, that's an and interesting there, idea. Yeah, and then there's a, a lot of thinking about uh, converting over nuclear power plants so that they're they're thorium based rather than uranium-based power plants. And the thorium is, is a much safer material, and, you know, it's, it's not weaponizable like uranium is. And right. um, it, it's cleaner. And India has been studying this quite a bit, and they say that they think they can reach 30% of their electrical needs through thorium by 2050. We'll, we'll see if they can manage to pull that off. I I There's a lot of thorium too. It, it's it's not not hard to find thorium, is it? Yeah, you can get it at the grocery store. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's readily it's, available in coal mines, right? It's pretty easy to pull out of the ground, but probably not at your local local Kroger or something. <laughs> but uh, <okay. laughs> anyway, well, yeah. 
just back to the uh, the power plant, Japan's idea. I presume, in order to get the the energy back down to earth, they're going to have to use microwaves or or something like that to laser or yeah. something. You know, to... So the the idea is to uh, shoot a very a broad beam, so it's actually two miles across. This beam coming down to the earth, so then uh, a broad enough beam like that is relatively harmless. But some of, some of my friends argue with me on this, saying, yeah, if it's relatively harmless, then it won't have any power to it. So uh, how harmful is that going to be to the birds and the butterflies and things that fly through the air? I mean, what are we doing to the uh, environment and to the atmosphere by shooting beams through it? We don't even know. So there's lots of unknowns and lots of possibilities, but... Yeah, I mean, there's lots of unknowns with all of these these technologies. I mean, things can go haywire, and that's what we have to worry about. Well, you know, our, our current grid. I mean, we have to put high, high uh, voltage on these on our, on these lines, and then step it down to get to, you know, uh, to power that you put into a home. And of course, a lot of energy is lost along the way. What, what can be done about that in the future? That's part of well, what you I wrote talk a- about here. Yeah, I wrote a column a while back on the idea of of developing the first graphene superconductor power grid. There's been some breakthroughs at Cambridge University on actually developing what they claimed was a room temperature superconductor with graphene. They had modified in a certain way. And then uh, the people in Kansas State University figured out how to actually mass produce graphene and those those two things could be indicators. I mean, there's the, the devil's always in the detail of will this thing work at full scale. And so if you think about these giant overhead power lines being able to, you can reduce them down to a single thread almost, just a single line that you can bury under the ground, graphene that you can carry just enormous, enormous amounts of current through that, that's such a game changer. I think what we do is we, we replace the, the national power grid with, with segments, one segment at a time. But if you think about dismantling the, you know, the national grid and replacing it with a, a superconductor power grid, that has so much uh, potential to just be a massive game changer there. Also, it'd be, it'd be good for for security as well, right? Because well, we have right now a, a grid that's uh, you know, vulnerable to electromagnetic pulse and all kinds of things, right? If, if, yeah. Uh, if, 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 there were, if you had smaller, more isolated grids, maybe, maybe one, part of our, you know, one part of the country might go down, but the remaining, remaining country might, might be able to stay up. Well, I mean, well that's just it. Um, yeah, when you, when you have threats coming from, like, North Korea that maybe they're playing around with uh, an EMP electromagnetic pulse weapon that could be set off up in the atmosphere and and just uh, effectively bomb us back to the Stone Ages because it wipes out of all of our electronic equipment, then you have to be worried. I mean, this idea of threats and violence is, is kind of hitting us from all angles right now. If it's not hurricanes in Texas and Florida and the Caribbean, then it's uh, shootings in Las Vegas and and so safety and security is, is becoming such a high priority. And it's, it's less about sustainability and more about durability. 
uh, on a lot of fronts. I mean, are we creating durable enough systems here that we can count on them, you know, 10, 20 years in the future? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, another thing you talk about here is home batteries being replaced by drones. I love the picture of that. You, can, you know, you could have a self-driving, look like a UPS truck or something, uh, moving through the neighborhood with drones going back and forth with battery packs for the houses. And, yeah. I, you know, I, I, am I picturing uh, something close to what you were, you were thinking about? Yeah, uh, that's, that's one possible vision. I mean, is that reasonable? I mean, you, have, you could actually have a flying drone that just flies up and docks with your house and changes the batteries out on your house. How often do you need your batteries changed? Well, it, it knows it's automated. It knows when you're getting low. It just sends out a signal and you get new batteries. Now, there's, a, there's an announcement uh, just a couple days ago by Toshiba that uh, they've developed some new kind of battery for cars where they can get 200, 200 miles on, on a charge and it can be recharged in six minutes. Wow. That's, that, that one right there, that's caught a lot of people's attention. Toshiba is a pretty credible company. So, yeah, and we're seeing, we're seeing these types of announcements and breakthroughs just almost on a, on a daily basis. Somebody thinks they have the, uh, the better mousetrap and, and makes some announcement. And so which ones are going to catch on and which ones aren't? Again, it's anybody's guess, but there's so much interest in this area. When Tesla, when Elon Musk announced their, their Model 3, that was actually the most successful product launch in all history. I mean, you have over 400,000 people putting down $1,000 uh, for the right to buy a new electric car that they've actually never seen. And that caught so many of the automakers off guard because they had no idea there was that much demand for electric vehicles. And, right. uh, and, and so that uh, now we're seeing all of these introductions of electric vehicles Every, uh, every automaker has got the, their own fleet of electric vehicles now that they want to offer for sale. Yeah, so, I mean, when it comes to recharging these electric vehicles, though, what kind of demand does that put on the grid? And do, are we going to start seeing the grid demand spike in uh, new and different ways? Again, these are lots of unknowns that we're dealing with here. Right. Well, I mean, one thing I, I suppose that... Uh, electric vehicles could do is they could be part of sort of the battery backup for the for the home it, when a vehicle is parked and, uh, and if you have uh, you're harvesting solar energy uh, during the day it could it could perhaps take that peak energy and, and use it for transportation or even keep it and, and give it back to the house I suppose this could be part of the battery right. for the entire house so yeah um, I mean that's that's one one possibility um, right. One one of my scenarios is so that as we move to the driverless uh, technology, that we will stop owning our own vehicles, and so then we just summon a vehicle when we need it. We, and we've summon got the this exact act. vehicle you need. You, usually, you don't need uh, anything more than a single uh, person vehicle. Um, exactly. If you exactly. Need, if you need more, you summon you summon a bigger vehicle. But uh, yeah, often you won't. Yeah, need exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so, so the average car today only gets used 4% of the day. And, and so the rest of the time it's sitting in garages and parking lots, and so then it would work easily as a battery backup for a house. But if we stop owning our own vehicles, then that, that changes that whole scenario. 
so there's there's different ways of looking at all of these things and and we we're looking for the signals what's the right signal that will give me some confidence in forecasting it going this direction as opposed to that one and on on Wednesday's show we will uh we're going to discuss uh, have a whole show about your thoughts on uh, driverless cars I, I should say uh autonomous cars and uh, so we kind of that's yeah. sort of our preview. Uh, what we just said, uh, what you just said, is sort of the preview of Wednesday night's show. That's awesome. Okay. Tell us a little bit about your ideas on large-scale energy storage. I mean, if we are producing uh, or harvesting solar energy and wind power and even tidal power and other things like that, these things are not necessarily. We don't necessarily get these this power exactly at the moment we need to use it. So, what are, what are yeah. some of the best ways of storing that so it can be used whenever we need it? Well, there's, there's been a lot of attempts at figuring this out, and everything is fairly inefficient at the moment. Over, over the years, we've been using this idea of having a lake up on the top of a mountain. We pump water up onto the top of the mountain, and then, and then during the peak times, we let it run downhill and turn a turbine that will generate power to handle peak demands of electricity. That's, that's terribly inefficient. So there's been a lot of work done on supercapacitors, on flywheels, on liquid metal batteries um, and uh, just grid-oriented batteries, heat fusion. There's just lots of, lots of ideas that have been percolating and, and being bounced around. But where, where are we going to see the, the most traction on this? We always look for the killer app, uh, mass energy storage system that, I mean, if it could be built inside of a, a shipping container and a city will buy you know, 20 or 30 of them, and they'll stack them up in some out-of-the-way place in the city, and then they have backup battery supply for the city. So if the grid goes down uh, for some reason, then they have battery power that could last them for the next two weeks for critical services at least. Is that reasonable? We, we don't know. I think we're going to see lots of experimentation, and who knows what the right one that's going to come out of the mix is going to be. Seems like everything that's been tried so far has has its you know upsides and downsides. I mean, things like they've experimented with molten salt, but the problem is it's so corrosive that any any storage container that would could handle the heat tends to corrode. So I mean, it's just it's it's it's, a, it's been it's proven to be kind of a hard nut to crack. Maybe as battery right. technology or capacitor technology continues to improve, we'll, we'll find the right 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 things for large scale energy. So. Yeah, that's that's one of my arguments against these exponential growth curves. We see something moving in a certain direction, but then sometimes we stall out because the problems become become too hard to solve. And uh, and so uh, an exponential growth curve is not inevitable. Right. That's that, that's kind of the lesson I've learned over over the years. But you know, if you start thinking about the the biggest power usage. We use fossil fuels for everything on the farm. We use it for the shipping industry, for the airline industry. And these are, these are some of the largest polluters that are out there. So if we got really energy-efficient motors and batteries and systems like that, then we could start powering everything on the farm, uh, including the tractors and the trucks and the combines and augers and swathers and balers and uh, sprayers and all of these things could be converted over to electric systems. And it's the same in the shipping industry. I mean, the the biggest polluters on the planet right now are these giant cargo ships that are 
dumping this total sludge garbage into the ocean. And because they're they're in the ocean, uh, there's there's no authority over what they what they do. And then, I mean, the airline industry. I mean, I'm part of this because I fly to other countries all the time, uh, dumping lots of jet fuel into the into the atmosphere as thousands and thousands of jets cross the ocean every day. Could all of these be turned to an electric power base? Maybe. I mean, it's not going to happen tomorrow, yeah. but is is that possible? Maybe. Yeah. Well, there has been some uh, wor- work on uh, some experimentation with electric uh, jets and uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, uh, electric shipping would be awesome, wouldn't it? Uh, you could have the giant container ships out there with – that's a lot of space for solar panels. Well, well that's, that's, uh, that's for sure. I mean, there's, there's yeah. a lot of room, and you could capture quite a bit of power just from the surface there. But, but I mean, the, the, the power demands are quite significant on these giant ships. So they, they just go back to the old tried-and-true methods because they know that works. But uh, somebody's got to blaze some new trails here along the way. Well, we already mentioned drones uh, earlier, but what are some of the things that you foresee uh, drones being used for that perhaps uh, you know most people haven't thought of? Drone deliveries, uh, you know, there's there, there's been experimentation with that. Probably plenty of applications for uh, electric drones that we haven't we haven't really. Oh yeah. So I, I wrote a wrote a column a while back on 192 future uses for flying drones. And I, I started with the asking the question that if I added a video projector to a drone, what capabilities would that give me? And it's it's you know it started off with oh I think if I use that drone in a concert or a visual arts performance that kind of creates some interesting visual effects. But then then it occurred to me that if I had a drone that could project an image, I could actually find a wealthy person I could project marketing messages and advertising messages to this person as they're walking down a sidewalk, it could become the most annoying form of advertising ever created. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. Absolutely. So, but then after I, I started going down that path and I started asking the question like, well, what capabilities would it give me if I added speakers to a drone, if I added lights to a drone, if I added signaling device, if I added a robotic arm, what capabilities would that give me? And then you have different sensors, and, and you go down that path, and, and the ideas just start sparking. You could use a drone for this. You could use it for that. Like right now, as an example, we have the potential to eliminate forest fires completely by having drones that are flying overhead that uh, are monitoring any hot spots that happen in the forest. And as soon as you spot something, then you can you can call in the fire extinguisher drones to put it out. So much earlier that, than uh, it would have been handled using traditional methods, right? Well, exactly. I mean, it's very easy to put out a fire if it's only a couple feet in diameter. That's, that's relatively easy. But when it turns into hundreds of acres that are blazing away, then, then we put a lot of lives at risk, which I think needlessly. I, I use this term quite a bit. This the, the idea of anomaly zero. Uh, how close can we get to the source of a problem? I mean, it gets into all these theories about the, the butterfly wings flapping and causing a hurricane on the other side of the planet. But um, if we start finding where the getting much closer to the original anomaly that created this set of circumstances that causes a natural disaster or some other situation that needs to be dealt with. As we use more and more sensors, we're able to track things back to the source. 
and we can mitigate the damages at a far earlier point. And, and I, I find that to be absolutely fascinating. That can actually be used inside of corporations, inside of cities, inside of governments, and we can, we can track down problems before they become serious problems. In our, in our final moments here, let me, uh, let me ask you a little bit about off-grid living. That's the ultimate in, in a microgrid, isn't it? When the microgrid is just the one house, right? I guess the tiny home movement would make that easy, wouldn't it? If, uh, if, if your house is small enough or portable or whatever, perhaps that makes it easy to produce enough energy to support it. Right. And there, there's been a lot of, lot of efforts. I mean, the Rocky Mountain Institute has, has played around with these different ideas, but if it's not convenient, people tend not to want to change their behavior. So how do we make it so that it's, you just have a normal lifestyle and uh, the house actually produces all its own things? I mean, you can have atmospheric water harvesters that suck water out of the air. You can have energy harvesters that suck energy out of the air, and you can have solar panels and then having sewer systems, actually auto-composting systems and things like that. So then you, you, you actually don't have any physical lines that come to the house anymore, and then you have wireless Wi-Fi coming in, so you have all the entertainment that you need, and that suddenly that becomes a whole living unit that it doesn't require all this outside connection to make it all happen. That, to me, is just so much more efficient than kind of the highly dependent lifestyles that we have right now. Absolutely. Well, the last thing you've got in this article here that you mentioned is tube transportation. And I mean, that's, that's a whole show in itself right there. That includes the Hyperloop and, other, and several other projects, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny because, you know, Elon Musk is pushing Hyperloop, and then now he's, now he's announced that, well, we could all just get, get in rockets and get places far faster than through a tube transportation. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I think yeah. he's just trying to find a way to pay for that rocket, but it, it, it seems to me <laughs> that, uh, that ro- rockets have their own set of problems, including sound pollution and everything else that wouldn't necessarily oh, yeah. have with the Hyperloop, right? Well, right. Uh, tube transportation, I mean, this has been around for a long time, long time before Elon Musk started talking about it. Uh, these ideas of getting inside of a tube, and you, if you take all the air out of the tube and you, you have a maglev track on the bottom, you, you have virtually no friction whatsoever. And so then the amount of power it takes to push a capsule through this tube is virtually nothing. So then with the tube system, the Hyperloop system that, that Musk has promoted, that's uh, bus size vehicles, things that are would hold, you know, like 20, 30 people at a time. You could put entire shipping containers in them and ship it down the, these giant tubes. Daryl Oster here in Colorado has, he's the founder of ET3, has looked at a much more streamlined, much more efficient tube where you can get, uh, where he's, he's projecting you can get speeds of up to 4,000 miles an hour. And then, uh, actually, I, I think that this tube transportation, you could actually create a grid network for powering the world right in the tube itself. And that's some of the things that are being proposed. And then, I mean, cutting across the Bering Strait or the Darien Gap down between North and South America, uh, these connect entire continents and as, as we're able to f- flow freely between these continents, that's just such a game changer on, on how the world works. We become very fluid in how we think about moving from point A to point B. But tube network like this, 
while I project it could actually be the largest infrastructure project ever on planet Earth, it's it's going to take you know 50 to 70 year build out to build a tube network, kind of like a highway system. You know, it just takes a long time to make all that happen. Right. You know, they, they'll plan an interstate. Or, you know, here's here's an interstate that's going to be uh, running through here, and uh, we'll see it in 20, 30 years. You know, that's, <laughs> it could very it could very well be something like that. But but I mean, something like a hyperloop that allows transportation at incredible speeds like that, and and so cheaply. Right. That's that that's a game changer, and uh, obviously look forward to seeing that. And even you know even as they just begin to, you know, uh, connect just uh, cities that are relatively close to each other, begin to be, uh, see some of the benefits of that. Uh, it'll be exciting to see. That'll have to be yeah. it for this show tonight. On Wednesday night, we're going to be talking about 25 shocking predictions about the coming driverless car era in the United States. So I hope our audience will join us again on Wednesday. Uh, Thomas, it's been fun tonight, as always. Look forward to uh, visiting with you again here uh, uh, for Wednesday night. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. We ask everybody to join us again on Wednesday and Friday. On Wednesday night, uh, Thomas Fry and I are talking the future and self-driving cars. And on Friday, we discuss the city of the future. Until next time, live to see it. 